Well, as you've been hearing in the news, and as you likely know, this is the final weekend before the election. The election happening on Monday, if you haven't already cast your ballots in the advance polls. Let's check in now with Abigail Beeman, who is a global national reporter, and she is on one of the campaign buses this morning. Uh, Abigail, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, Where are you and what's happening today? That's an excellent question. I am on the Liberal Media bus somewhere between Niagara Falls, Ontario and Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, The Liberal campaign has a, uh, well, crazy would be a good word, a crazy day of stops with events in three provinces, uh, starting with a number of events in Ontario, uh, then going to a rally in Winnipeg and then a rally in Calgary late, late tonight. That's, uh, you're covering a lot of ground today. Yes, yes. Uh, I know there's been some issues with the bus, so hopefully that all goes smoothly uh, today. (laughs) Good point. Yes, so far so good today. Uh, So talk a bit about, because obviously these decisions are made strategically on where uh, everybody's going to be on this final weekend. Uh, These clearly are are areas where they're still drumming up support and uh, making uh, the leader, making Justin Trudeau and and other uh, candidates very visible. It's very interesting when you look at the places that any leader chooses to visit, especially in the final stretch of the campaign. This is the last chance uh, to put a leader in places where that's going to make a difference to get out the vote uh, and where parties hope that they can win. Now, if you look at the ridings in Ontario today, and actually has been the case for the much much of the past couple of days, the Liberals are visiting ridings where they're playing um, where they're playing offense, meaning the ridings are held by another party in a number of cases the incumbent isn't running again so it's more of an open race but it's very interesting because it it suggests that the Liberals are quite confident they're not rushing into ridings that they hold that they're worried about losing they're saying hey you know we think we could pick up a seat here we could pick up a seat there uh, and that's where they're targeting a slightly different story when he heads west to Winnipeg and then to Calgary but for the last couple of days in that 905 area that you keep hearing about the important battleground much like uh, Lower Main land is an important battleground in the 905. A lot of the seats that he was visiting, and that's a a tight battle between conservatives and liberals, uh, were seats that they don't currently hold but think that they can pick up. Hmm, interesting indeed in uh, in Ontario. So what will the what will the shift be like or what do you think the difference will be then uh, going to Winnipeg? Right. So uh, in Winnipeg and especially more so in Alberta, it's uh, really a case of trying to hold on to the seats that they have, especially the case uh, in Alberta where uh, Trudeau is uh, no surprise and unpopular. Um, there is uh, they are holding uh, the rally in they that was elected as a liberal but Darshan Kang then um, a, ended as an independent so by ha- holding a rally in Calgary in that riding the liberals are suggesting that hey we think we can pick this one back up again it will be interesting to see whether that happens whether they can hold on to the couple of ridings that they have there a different story than in Ontario but it's also sending a, a message that you know the liberals they're well aware of the uh, sentiment around Trudeau in Alberta but he is hoping to become prime minister for the whole country and he's sending the message that it's important to to go back and uh, and and visit Alberta as well in this final stretch. And do you know do they give you the itinerary far enough in advance or do you know if there are plans to come back to BC before Monday? 
Well, the public itinerary has not yet been released. It usually comes out the evening before, but I, I would say that it would not be a surprise if the Liberals uh, spent their, their last day on the West Coast. You know, we talked about, you know, the 905, uh, Quebec and the lower BC Lower Mainland. Those are the three um, areas that a lot of people are watching, three very key areas. He spent a lot of time now towards the end in the 905 uh, in Quebec as well. So uh, it would not be a surprise if, uh, people in British Columbia saw Justin Trudeau before they headed to the polls. Right, and uh, and the Liberals, I think if uh, the numbers, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, 17 uh, seats in B.C. at the last election. Uh, the other leaders certainly are spending time in B.C. Uh, Jagmeet Singh was on Vancouver Island uh, yesterday. He's going to be uh, in Metro Vancouver today. Uh, Elizabeth May on Vancouver Island yesterday as well. She's going to be uh, on this side. Uh, Andrew Scheer is going to be in B.C. on Sunday, so certainly uh, like, like you said, picking those key areas and making sure that one that those final pushes are out there. It's very important for all the leaders and and all for slightly different reasons. I mean, for for Jagmeet Singh, who has seen a rise in the polls with the NDP, BC is critical to to him and to his party's future going forward. Because while they've seen uh, a rise in the polls across the country, not so much in Quebec, and that's where they currently hold a lot of seats. So BC is really key, especially to the NDP uh, for their party's future. But BC and especially the Lower Mainland is key to Liberals or Conservatives is both hoping to form a majority. And have you noticed being on the, the different buses and being a part of the campaign, certainly a lot of people have picked up uh, calling it one of the nastiest campaigns we've ever seen. Have you noticed a shift in either the tone uh, from the politicians, from the candidates or from people that they're meeting as they go to the different stops? That's a good question. Um, you know, we just had uh, Justin Trudeau's first stop of the day was at a retirement home. It, certainly no nastiness. A lot of seniors uh, very excited to to meet him. But you do see it in the uh, Trudeau anyway has been holding a media availability uh, every day of the past week. And every day he is put on the defense for something that the conservatives have lobbed at him. So yesterday uh, it was a, a big story that out of nowhere, Andrew Scheer said that, you know, an NDP liberal coalition would hike the GST, which was, there's no evidence of that. And so uh, Trudeau was uh, put on the defensive, um, talking about how conservatives just make this stuff up. So he, he's been getting a lot of questions, certainly, um, about the tone of the campaign. And, and certainly liberals have, uh, you, you know, done similar things in terms of, you know, keep bringing up the abortion debate, even though Andrew Shearer said he, he won't bring that up again. So there's certainly uh, issues on uh, both sides. Uh, we haven't really seen much nastiness in terms of the people that he's actually shaking hands with. Uh, but of course, a lot of that is, is carefully planned as well. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, Abigail Beeman, thank you so much. I know you have an extremely busy day ahead of you, but thanks so much for taking a few minutes with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's well, it seems that we have this conversation every year at this time. And a Vancouver City Councillor says he would like to see the sale of consumer fireworks banned in the city. And Green Councillor Pete Fry is set to bring that motion to council and to talk about that. <clears throat> Excuse me. He says it's been an ongoing issue especially for people who have animals that are spooked by fireworks, uh, for people who are suffering with PTSD, uh, that can it, be very, it can be very distressing and it can cause a lot of anxiety. 
And to talk more about this, we are going to bring in Raymond Greenwood, who's also known as Mr. Fireworks. I just quickly want to play for you this clip, though. This is Melanie Sutherland with the Canadian National Fireworks Association. And this is Melanie Sutherland responding to the proposal to ban fireworks. What it actually does is drive the market underground so consumers don't have the ability to go to reputable vendors in their local communities, talk with them on how to properly and safely use the consumer fireworks product. Instead, they are looking to other avenues to then purchase those consumer fireworks. All right, let's bring in Raymond Greenwood on this issue. Uh, Good morning to you. And a booming good morning to you. Uh, I think I know what your stance is going to be on this, but what is your reaction to uh, another call to ban consumer fireworks in Vancouver? To be blunt, just a waste of taxpayers and city staff time to do another report where the fire department was the people that came out with this permit system, which is an excellent system. Uh, anybody who wants to buy fireworks has to go online, do a 10-question uh, safety question on how to use fireworks. must be over 19 and must bring in two pieces of ID. It is well, well controlled in the city. And Melanie's right. You only need to go on Craigslist at Halloween and see the amount of illegal fireworks for sale, and especially bottle rockets, mighty mines, and things like that, and firecrackers, which, as you know, Jill, were banned in 1975. But just the other day, a media, another media outlet, showed firecrackers and bottle rockets for sale. Well, they are totally illegal. Well, and maybe that's uh, part of the issue in that we're having, diff- there are two very different conversations. And the issue I think a lot of people have, and unfortunately we have done stories in the past where animals have been spooked. Uh, I covered the, the very sad story of a dog that was spooked, went onto the uh, SkyTrain tracks and died. Uh, th- that's not happening because of these types of fireworks that are purchased and set off on Halloween night. That's happening because of people who are setting off the bottle rockets and the firecrackers and the illegal fireworks and they're doing it in the weeks and the days leading up to Halloween. Exactly. I mean, fireworks in Vancouver now can only be fired on Halloween evening, the 31st. But as many people will tell you, people are firing them off before. And as I said, they're buying them on Craigslist. They're going across the line past Blaine. I went there. The stuff they sell down across the line is what we call professional fireworks. And you would shoot off at the celebration of light nothing that you would use at your home and i have one i've been doing this now for 27 years and i have customers that for instance here host 200 school children on halloween night he happens to be a doctor and he's never ever had a problem and why spoil it well take the fun out of the city of vancouver we went through that 10 years ago let's not please bring it back uh, there are places, though, and it's a bit of a patchwork when you go around Metro Vancouver and the Lower Mainland, in that there are a lot of places that do have bans, aren't there? I agree. Now, of course, the craziest one is Burnaby, where they stopped retailers last year um, for selling fireworks in Burnaby, but you can still shoot them off. So, of course, that's been a great benefit. The other one is Diwali. And this year, Diwali, I believe, is about the 27. In Surrey, the skies light up with fireworks. And again, it's completely illegal in Surrey. So why not just legalize it safe 
uh, fireworks that are approved by Natural Resources Canada. Every firework that comes into Canada has to be approved by the labs in Ottawa. And they are well known throughout the year to the world to do a fabulous job there. Uh, proponents of this, uh, of banning them, will say uh, you need only to look at places like Surrey that banned them in 2005, and then they saw an immediate drop in fires that were fireworks related, and will say that that's a clear-cut case that shows it is safer to not have them. Well, it it was the same in Vancouver until the fire department, uh, the fire chief John McKerney at the time, put in this permit system, and fires went down considerably in Vancouver. I can't speak for Surrey because I don't sort of live out there, but uh, you're right. But as I say, they still do lots and lots of fireworks. So is it an issue, do you think, of, of the system? Because even Pete Fry, who is the councillor that is bringing this motion forward to Vancouver Council, uh, says the system isn't working because there are, like we said, the firecrackers, the bottle rockets are banned. Uh, if you violate the city's bylaw, which only allows setting off legal fireworks on Halloween, uh, you can be fined $500. But it seems like that's not working because people are breaking those rules anyway. Well, unfortunately, it's like a lot of things in the city of Vancouver. It's enforcement. Where are the policemen? It was like that parade yesterday on Snake and Parade. That should not have been allowed. That was keeping people from going home. And the week when they did the Barrage Street Bridge, they should have been taken all away by the police department. Where is the enforcement by the police department on those nights when these kids are letting these things off? Well, and, and I mean, to, to be fair in that sense, too, we couldn't, I, I wouldn't expect the Vancouver police, I mean, to, to be able to crack down on kids or teens or even adults that are setting off firecrackers, it's not as though you can have a police officer in every corner on every, in every neighborhood to, to solely crack down on that. I mean, it's the type of thing, too. Somebody sets them off and takes off. It's not as though it's a, a, an overly easy one to catch people doing that. That's true, but there are 1,800 policemen in the city. When I was in jolly old England, there used to be a policeman on every block. used to say, good evening, Dixon and Doc Green. Uh, there, there was little Bobby walking around, either walking or on his little push bike. And now they're in beautiful cars, and they could do a lot more policing on the night, for sure, or on the week off. And the border should be controlled, and it was at one time by an energy mines resources person. He actually had a dog, and he could sniff out people bringing back illegal fire, any type of fireworks into Canada through the border. And many dads go down there for the boys and think it's fun, but it's not fun because they're dangerous. It should be under control like it is with the city of Vancouver. It's a perfect system, and as I said, you know, they should not be taking, making Vancouver the no-fun city again. Why do you think it's important then? And I know you raised uh, the point of of celebrations with school kids and big events, but why is it important for anybody, for any household, to be able to set off fireworks? Well, it's a celebration that's gone back years and years. If you remember to Guy Fawkes in England in the 1600s when he tried to burn down the parliament, and forever then they celebrated Guy Fawkes on November the 5th. I used to do a show in actual fact in Pete Fry's area, but he attended it for for Guy Fawkes Night for an English guy down there, and that was legally permitted and to do on November the 5th. It's a fun, it's a celebration of the Harvest Festival. Interesting, if you're from back east, you do it on May long weekend, the opening of cottages. 
if you're from Newfoundland, you do it New Year's Eve. And I think, I'm not sure, and then in Winnipeg, they do it another, oh, Manitoba, they do it again at the Summer Festival. And Canada Day is a big, big day for family fireworks in many countries. And, of course, on Chinese New Year, I do over 16,000 firecrackers in the Chinatown Parade. Firecrackers? Firecrackers, which are legal for parades for Chinese celebrations. It's really the only one. They are legal to be used under supervision and under a permit, but not the type the kids use. So. All right. Well, we will leave it there. Uh, Raymond Greenwood, always good to chat with you. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. And hopefully everybody will come to my store on the 25th of November, October, Dunbar and 17th. I happened to see this story in the Vancouver Courier yesterday and the headline grabbed me. South Granville businesses are leaving en masse and scores of jobs hang in the balance. And then it goes on to talk about the reasons that so many businesses, particularly in South Granville in that neighborhood, are leaving. And it says, and talking to a lot of the business owners, they say it is Vancouver's high property taxes, which is one of the key factors as to why they have decided to shut down their businesses, to board up their businesses. And it also talks about the number of four lease signs and empty business and storefronts in the area as well. That's just one area and one example. But I thought it was timely uh, seeing that article because that is what we are talking about for the next few moments. And a new study put out by the Fraser Institute is entitled or titled Who Bears the Burden of Property Taxes in Canada's Largest Metropolitan Areas? And joining me to talk about the numbers and the findings in this study is senior policy analyst Joseph Filipowicz. He is on the line with us now. Joseph, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, Jill. It's great to be here. Uh, Can you walk us through what you looked at? And maybe if we focus on the lower mainland, when we look at property taxes, uh, residential rates and business rates, what were you looking at specifically in this study? Yeah, well, uh, so, I mean, as, as you mentioned, many, many citizens and especially businesses in the lower mainland are worried about property taxation and news stories like the one you just talked about from the courier are, are nothing new. Um, unfortunately, they, they come out all too frequently. Uh, so in our report, we, uh, we compare um, what are called ratios between the property tax rates faced by businesses and those faced by residents. Um, and what we find is that local businesses in, in the lower mainland face three times higher property tax rates than residents do on average. And, and uh, you know, as, as all the stories uh, that, uh, that, that, that we hear in the news about this can attest, this can hurt local businesses as well as the local economy as a whole. Uh, you also took a look at breaking it down, if we look at the lower mainland, uh, city by city and by municipality. And were you surprised at all by the gaps or how different it was depending on what area you are in, whether you're a resident or a business owner? Yeah, there were certainly some some variation. What we see is that uh, a cluster of cities uh, around where the Burrard Inlet is, so that includes Vancouver, Burnaby, uh, New Westminster, which isn't on the inlet, but still it's, it's, it's close, like it's in the region's core, uh, and even Coquitlam and Mission, actually, they, in all of these places, commercial property tax rates were about three and a half times uh, residential rates. Um, and then on the other side of the equation, you have places like uh, like like Port Moody and, and some of the smaller communities like Bowen Island, where it's closer it's closer to two and a half or two to one. Um, so it's still a lot higher in those communities. Everywhere in the Lower Mainland, it's a lot higher. Uh, property tax rates are a lot higher for businesses, but uh, there is some variation. And, and what's uh, you know what's interesting and, and maybe. Uh, 
uh, unfortunate is that local governments and, and provincial governments that, that um, levy these taxes aren't really forthcoming with, with justification for this, right? It's hard to figure out why they're doing this. Because is it oversimplifying to suggest that property taxes should be linked to the number or the amount of services that you use? Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. There needs to be clear principles that underpin um, the rates that are set, right? They can't just be set arbitrarily. And, and uh, you know, property tax rates um, should reflect the level of services used by ratepayers uh, and by different categories of, of real estate. So, so local and provincial governments should really demonstrate how businesses in, in Vancouver or, or, or in other cities in the lower mainland uh, consume, uh, you know, about three times the local services that residents do. In fact, the city of Vancouver uh, um, about a decade ago conducted a, a, a study. They got some consultants to come in and, and really look at um, the consumption of, of tax-supported services in the city. And what they found was that businesses were subsidizing residents. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, there's an imbalance there, right? There's, there's no direct tie between what businesses pay and, and, uh, and or at least from, from that report, between what businesses pay and, and the services that they receive from City Hall. Because if you had a business, and I'll just, um, thinking off the top of my head, if you had a business, say you sell computer parts and you've got a storefront, you have a business, people can walk in, they can buy computer screens, monitors, maybe they get their computers fixed. Uh, compared to a business where you have a cafe, uh, in that cafe you have a working kitchen, you have bathrooms for both staff and for the public. It would seem that the cafe would use a whole lot more services, uh, be it garbage, uh, sewage, uh, water. It would use a lot more than the computer store. But my guess is the model would charge them the same. Absolutely right. You have a say. You have a small bookstore next to a next to a single family home. They're both about the same size. They have about the same size lot. Um, and, and are, are valued at about the same uh, same amount on the market. Well, it would it would turn out that in the city of Vancouver, for example, that bookstore would be paying three and a half times the property taxes paid by the house next door. So so it, it really is unclear what the what the link is between uh, the rates that they're paying and the services they receive. Um, I've I've heard you know are, there are some arguments maybe about industrial properties taking more of a toll on roads, for example. Fine, but you know in cities like like Vancouver. Um, Industrial properties, major industrial properties, are paying 14 times the rate that residents are. So this, in BC in general, um, you see a lot higher industrial rates. So, so never mind the commercial situation, which is already bad. Um, the industrial situation is is even worse. Uh, did it come into play, or, or did uh, your study look at as well in Vancouver, uh, in BC, the idea of best use in that a lot of the taxes are based on, on not only the assessed value, but are based on not what a property, uh, a business property or commercial property is being used for, but what it could potentially be used for? That's a that's a really interesting uh, subject. It's not one that we covered in the in the study because we really wanted to focus on ratios. But I do know that assessment practices and how they differ across provinces um, can be can be also incredibly important in determining what ultimately citizens and businesses have to pay. I think that deserves its own study and its own right because yeah, as you said, you know if if uh, if um, uh, citizens are paying or if the businesses are paying rates based on um, you know the the highest and best. Um, you know, value for their property, even if if the property is not zoned for that or or, or, or whatever. Um, what you might end up with is is a situation where they're paying well beyond the for uh, sorry for a lot more than just the services that they receive with the current use of uh, of uh, of that property. So I, I think that again, it's really about tying what folks are paying, what businesses are paying in property taxes 
to the, the level of local services that they're receiving. Otherwise, you see an erosion in political accountability. You see no clear principle that's guiding these decisions that impact our day-to-day lives. Like, it, it's really opaque. And, and I think citizens and businesses deserve um, to at least have a clear benchmark from which they can determine whether or not their local policymakers are making the right decisions. Uh, and do you think as well, when we're talking about residential rates, because in Vancouver, to use that as an example, uh, there have been hikes in the property taxes. The last one, I think, was around 4%. Um, every year, it seems, when the budget is done, it, there is an increase in the residential rates and people get upset about that because it does make it much more expensive for people. Uh, does it come into play? I mean, it must come into play when they set these rates and decide on this, uh, that those are the same people that are voting for them, whereas uh, a resident votes, a business might be a business owner, but a business doesn't vote. Well, that's, it. that's exactly it. It comes, I mean, so in, in all the literature that's been written academically on this subject over the over decades, the, the area where there seems to be the most consensus is that, look, there's not really much justification for this gap between rights. The only thing that really could drive this is political considerations. And those considerations, as you, as you mentioned, are that businesses don't vote. Um, and in fact, in Ontario and Quebec, uh, there's separate rates for, for high-density buildings, too. So actually, uh, uh, renters pay higher property tax rate and don't know it because they don't see it in a bill than, uh, than, than homeowners. So, so really, you know, rather be, than being driven by considerations of, of, uh, of, uh, of paying for the benefits received, right, paying for the services that are consumed, it looks like there's political, um, you know, there's, there's political motivations that are underpinning these rates. And I think it's up to, to, to local governments and provincial governments to really demonstrate uh, whether this is not the case, because it seems like the only feasible explanation. And and also, I suppose, explain too, and, and the research, and you mentioned this, there, there's such differences in such a small area in that comparing New Westminster, uh, Coquitlam Mission uh, to something like Port Moody, where the ratios are so different. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when, you know, uh, Coquitlam and, and Port Moody are neighbors. So so that's significant, right? If I if I was going to open a business, I, I would really consider a factor like that because that's enormous. That's a huge difference from from 2.7 to 1 in uh, in Port Moody to uh, to about three and a half to one in Coquitlam. I, I think that that would make a, a big difference in my decision if I were uh, looking to locate or, or relocate a business. And, and you know, on a, on a large scale, um, all of these decisions that are taken by local businesses matter because when punitive commercial uh, property tax rates force businesses to leave or close then the composition of cities and towns can change profoundly and these are you know this doesn't just impact those businesses it impacts all of the citizens who depend on those businesses for their day-to-day services and goods all right we'll have to leave it there we're out of time but thank you so much for joining us and talking about this today well, thanks for having me, Jill. Vaping has been in the news headlines uh, these past few days and weeks. Uh, we were hearing about illnesses and deaths in the United States. And we now have a confirmed illness here in B.C. And we heard this past week as well from the MLA for Kamloops South calling on the province to bring in legislation to end youth vaping. Imploring the government to take action. And uh, we, uh, we have seen no action uh, to this point. So uh, the pressure is certainly mounting and building by the day for the John Horgan government to do something. Uh, I hope that uh, they're going to take some action very, very quickly. That was Todd Stone speaking earlier this week, saying that the province needs to stop waiting for other jurisdictions to take action. Well, the city of Richmond is taking action, and Malcolm Brody, who is the mayor of Richmond, joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Mayor Brody, thank you so much for being with us. Well, good morning, Joe. Uh, tell me a bit about uh, this move to ban vaping ads. How did that come about in Richmond? 
Well, all of this has come about very, very quickly. Uh, our process started uh, about a year ago with our smoking regulations. Uh, we extended them to uh, vaping, uh, the habit of vaping, uh, so you can't vape in city property or in buildings and that kind of thing. But the marketing seemed to be that vaping was a healthy alternative to smoking. And also it was a lot was being focused in the products and the ads on the kids. So uh, our council took it upon themselves to say, no, uh, we've got to do something. We hope that the province or the feds are going to do something about it. But in the meantime, to the extent that we can control the advertising in the bus shelters and those kinds of facilities, uh, we we will work with our partners and not have ads for vaping products. And uh, uh, our private sector partners on the bus shelters, the Patterson Group, they've been very cooperative with us on it. And were there ads already up then that have to be taken down? Um, to my knowledge, they were not up, but they they were in the work. And so we would have ads within a short period of time had we not taken this, these kinds of steps. Um, I, I don't think there are any now in Richmond. All right, because I know TransLink has ads in some of its SkyTrain stations, but as far as you know then, would your ban on the ads then also apply to the Canada Line stations that are in Richmond? No, the Canada Line stations are TransLink property or provincial property. They are not city property, so we don't legislate uh, and affect them. Um, but where we do have jurisdiction is over, you know, the bus shelters and those other uh, advertising spots. And I think that, uh, you know, we all go by these large ads on the bus shelters, and I think that they can be very noticeable and persuasive. Uh, so I think that it's an important step that we've taken to try and curb that uh, situation. Uh, so with the ads then uh, being banned on city property and the city shelters, then uh, are vape shops still allowed or are people with businesses still be allowed to sell vaping products in Richmond? Yeah, we, we only have a few shops that are actually the whole shop is for vaping products. But there's lots and lots of shops that have uh, bits and pieces of, of the industry. Um, just as, you know, we haven't ever made a move to to ban the sale of tobacco products. I don't see us uh, trying to ban the sale of vaping products. But what we can do is uh, reduce the the kind of public visibility on it, and and uh, you know hopefully mitigate the situation to a certain extent. Uh, there's been a bit of, of debate on this or a bit of pushback uh, from people saying that, well, it, it seems to have gone, and, and I think most people would agree that the the uh, maybe unintended consequence or young people taking up vaping, particularly vaping, vaping when it has nicotine or when it has THC in it, it was not the, the goal. The goal was uh, that these products could be used from pe- for people who were smokers who were trying to quit smoking. Um, some of the backlash that I'm seeing is from people saying, well, now you're, you're taking it away from people who would actually be using this as a healthier option uh, compared to smoking. What do you say to that? Well, we're not taking away anything. What we're trying to do is is dampen the encouragement uh, on on the product, because first of all, it's being focused largely towards the the young people with the different flavors and that kind of thing, uh, and it's it's encouraging young people to take up vaping because it's safe, and 
I, I'm no medical person, but my guess is that if you've been smoking all your life and you're 50 years old, vaping is probably a healthier alternative than uh, smoking tobacco. Uh, but for the young people, uh, there are real health risks to this uh, habit, uh, and uh, we just want to discourage uh, the visibility of the, of the product as much as we can. Uh, much like uh, tobacco ads, I would imagine, or other or other ads like that. Exactly, exactly. And so, so if people are going to do it, then people are going to do it. Uh, but we don't want to uh, set the stage for it to be encouraged and and, and have a real focus on uh, on vaping, especially as you say, when the idea has been floated that this is a safe alternative. Well, maybe it's safer than a few other things. Uh, but it is not a safe alternative, and the statistics you talked about over North America prove that point. Uh, you're this first city in BC to do this. Are you surprised that that you're the first? That there aren't others also taking this step? I actually am surprised. I didn't realize that uh, this was unprecedented. Uh, I, I can tell you the feedback that we have gotten from various associations and from from the public and from other cities and, and, you know, other city staff has been very, very positive. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see a similar type of approach elsewhere or who knows, maybe they improve on it. I don't know. Uh, And are there other laws in place? And like you said, you can't stop the sale of vaping products and and such, but it is a big one of the big issues is education. And and rather than than having the ads out there that might be very attractive to younger people, what about the education arm of it and making sure people know uh, that there are these illnesses, there have been deaths connected to this, uh, that it's not uh, not always a safe thing to do? Uh, I think that that is a, a key point, and we have been in contact with Vancouver Coastal Health, who are very supportive of this initiative, and uh, to the extent the city can get the word out about the health risks and uh, the other problems associated with vaping, and to kind of put it more in context, uh, I think we'd be wanting to do. Uh, so, uh, so that's probably a partnership with Vancouver Coastal Health at the end. And as far as enforcement, does the city of Richmond have enough uh, enough enforcement in place in that, do you know, if, if people are vaping in public or much like you're not supposed to smoke near doors and such, uh, if people are doing that, are they being ticketed or is there is there are there bylaw officers or officers that are stopping that? Well, Joe, that's just like the smoking. So we took the smoking rules and we extended them to vaping. So. The Vancouver Coastal Health is in charge of enforcement of the rules in, in that regard. Uh, I, I think, uh, for the most part, we have cooperation uh, in that regard. Uh, you know, I, I can't remember the last time I saw or detected a person smoking indoors or, you know, not in the right place. Um, I think those kind of rules are being respected. But, yes, there are enforcement mechanisms and people that uh, go around and enforce these rules where necessary. All right. And just before I let you go, just to to clarify this as well, because uh, so Richmond has taken this step, uh, but there are the stations, the Canada Line stations in Richmond, which will still be able to have vaping ads uh, because they're under TransLink's jurisdiction. Would you like TransLink to take the step of banning these ads as well? I know that TransLink is actively looking at it. Uh, there's there's precedent in terms of what they can and cannot restrict. 
but I know that they are looking at it, and uh, uh, I expect that they'll be taking some sort of action within the not-too-distant future. Because they, they have cited free speech, saying that the ads aren't illegal, uh, so, that, that, so they're not going to take them down. Are you anticipating any kind of backlash from the vaping companies, saying it's free speech, they should be allowed to have their ads in those places? Well, if we do, we do, and we'll deal with it at that time. Um, uh, that that may be a factor. I was on the transit board when we went to the Supreme Court of Canada on some election ads, and the Supreme Court said we had to allow the ads because of free speech. Maybe there's that argument. We haven't encountered it yet. Uh, I, I'm maybe I'm naive, but I'm hopeful that uh, that the province is going to come in enact some regulations accordingly, and that this is just simply a stopgap measure until the province or the feds uh, are able to do something. Uh, I agree with the minister from uh, uh, MLA from Kamloops when he said the province needs to act, but it has come upon us very, very quickly, and I don't think anybody can be faulted at this point. All right. Uh, We will leave it there. Mayor Brody, thank you so much for your time. Anytime, Jill. Thank you. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone. And for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.